You are now listening to the March 13th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and divine intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. For our Story of Kings today, we will share the stories of not just one, but several kings. For one, we do not have a lot of recorded stories about them in the Bible. These four kings come from Israel, the northern kingdom. After these four kings of Israel, we have one more king, and then there are no more kings in Israel. The four kings we will cover today are Shalom, the 15th king, Menahem, the 16th king, Pekahiah, the 17th king, and Pekah, the 18th king of Israel. We get their stories from 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 13 through 31. Some of the listeners may recall from the last time, Zechariah, the 14th king of Israel, was killed by Shalom, the son of Jabesh. We noted then that this was in fulfillment of God's promise that Jehu's descendants would last to the fourth generations on the throne of Israel. As the record attests, Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king of Israel after eliminating Zechariah. That was in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. However, unfortunately, Shalom did not last long After only one month in power, he was killed by Menahem, son of Gadi. Shalom came into power after conspiring against and killed Zechariah, but he was killed by another conspirator, Menahem, and Shalom's throne was overtaken. The Bible does not provide much details about Shalom, only that in Assyrian history, Shalom is recorded as a son of an insignificant man And from that, we deduce that he was not from a royal family. Then who was this Menahem, son of Gadi, who became the 16th king of Israel after killing Shalom? The Bible records that Menahem went up from Tirzah and came to Samaria and killed Shalom and became king in his place. From this record, theologians surmise that Menahem was a commander of the army under Zechariah who was stationed in Tirzah. Tirzah was the old capital of Israel, a city about nine miles east of Samaria. When he heard Shalom conspired against his king and replaced him as king, Menahem thought he should do something about it. In fact, he could become king if he were to kill Shalom. He subsequently carried out this ambition by charging up to Samaria. Since he was a commander of the army, it was not difficult for him to assemble an army of soldiers. So once he reached Samaria, Menahem successfully killed Shalom and became the 16th king of Israel. The Bible records that after Menahem became king, he returned to Tirzah. From there, he struck Tifsa 
and killed all who were in it. Here he acted very brutally. He held a grudge against the people of the city for not opening the gate for him. For that, he brutally murdered them and even ripped up all the women who were pregnant. Menahem became angry at them for not accepting him as king and carried out such a brutal act. In 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 18, the Bible tells us that Menahem did evil in the sight of God and did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam. The Bible, in fact, records that all preceding kings of Israel before Menahem did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. However, in the case of Menahem, the Bible adds an additional phrase that Menahem did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam. From this extra phrase, we imagine that Menahem must have been worse than the other kings in terms of his wickedness and being evil. Menahem became king of Israel and reigned over Israel for ten years until he died. After Menahem died and his son Pekahiah became the seventeenth king of Israel, his son also did evil in the sight of God and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. Other than that, the Bible does not have much record of Pekahiah. Pekahiah reigned over Israel for two years. Though Pekahiah became king after his father, he was soon killed by Pekah, son of Ramaliah, who was one of his officers. This is how Pekah carried out his rebellion. He went up to Samaria with fifty men of the Gileadites and killed Pekahiah and his confidants Argob and Aria. Seeing how fifty Gileadites took part in the conspiracy, theologians explain that Pekah must have been a commander of the army overseeing the Gilead territory. Also, although the Bible does not tell us exactly who Argob and Aria were, theologians explain that they might have been Pekahiah's sons who would have been next in line to become king. Or simply, they might have been his loyal servants. Pekah became the 18th king of Israel through rebellion. The Bible renders a verdict that he did evil in the sight of God and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, which made Israel sin. While Pekah was in power over Israel, a neighboring country to the north was becoming stronger. That was Assyria. To be able to fend off Assyria, Pekah made an alliance with Rezin, king of Aram. From there, Pekah and Rezin decided that their alliance would still not be enough to withstand Assyria. So Pekah and Rezin proceeded to force the hand of King Ahaz in Judah to join their alliance against Assyria. These two kings surrounded Jerusalem and attacked Judah. However, they could not win. It was because Ahaz at the time determined that it was better to make an alliance with stronger Assyria. Ahaz requested Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, for assistance, and Assyria accepted that request and attacked Israel and Aram. The lands Assyria took away from Israel 
are listed in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29. They were Aijan, Abelbeth Maica, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali. Assyria not only took these lands, but also took the people of Israel as captives of Assyria. Pekah continued with idol worshiping and did evil in the sight of God. He ruled over Israel as he pleased. In the end, he was assassinated by Hosea, son of Elah. When he died, he had been sitting on the throne for 20 years. Based on the period of Pekah's reign as recorded in the Bible, theologians say that Pekah might have made an alliance with the 16th king, Menahem, and the 17th king, Pekahiah, while they were ruling over Israel. And Pekah already started to rule over Gilead for them. When Hosea, son of Elah, conspired against Pekah and killed him, that was the 20th year of King Jotham of Judah. And going back 20 years from that point is when the time of Pekah's reign overlaps with the time of Menahem's and Pekahiah's reign. In any case, what is important is not when Pekah started reigning and how long he reigned, but how Pekah reigned. Pekah did evil in the sight of God during the time of his reign, ruling as he wished and faced his death in his sin. The kings we share today are Shalom, Menahem, Pekahiah, and Pekah. They were the kings who took over the throne through a rebellion and some of them were killed in a rebellion. None of them turned back to God, and all of them did evil in the sight of God. Israel repeated its rebellious ways and headed closer and closer towards its destruction. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Arizona. Today's topic is Things I Avoid. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. James chapter 4. Studying through the book of James, and now we come to the fourth chapter. And while you're doing that, I just I want to think about this. The world never stops fighting, never stops fighting. Unfortunately, sometimes there are fights in the church. And that was the case uh, in the churches during the time that James is writing. I'm not sure that every church he's writing to was experiencing this, but we know that some are. He wouldn't have written it. Look what he says in James chapter 4, verse 1. Just the first part of the verse, he says, what causes quarrels And what causes fights among you? They were having what? Quarrels and what? Fights. Tom Askell, in an article entitled Church Splits, writes, a little bit of a longer quote, but listen, he says, when a congregation experiences division, the consequences are often devastating, widespread, and long-lasting. I think we all understand that. The sinful severing of relationships always breeds betrayal and disillusionment. In a church, the the pain caused by schism can also give rise to mistrust and cynicism. Two emotional weeds that if not uprooted will prevent the kind of love and vulnerability that are essential to genuine gospel fellowship. Ever been hurt by somebody in the church? Ever been pain? Ever make you feel like, well, I'm not going back? Or you you look with cynicism at the church like, I don't know anymore. These negative consequences, he goes on to say, inevitably undermine a church's mission to be a city on a hill that displays the glory of God to a lost and dying world. The message of reconciliation rings hollow when proclaimed by people who can't get along with each other. The world looks, shrugs its shoulders, and turns away. It has not seen even the beginning of a living church in the midst of a dying culture. If we can't get along, Jesus says the greatest evidence, the greatest apologetic. Remember I told you that that is a defense for, the greatest apologetic for us being the church in the way is the love that we have for one another. If we don't have that kind of love, then 
the world's going to shrug its shoulders and say, whatever. Now, James goes on to reveal the source of the quarrels and the conflicts. It's not a person. He didn't say, and you, Joe, you're the problem. Look at verse 1. He says, what causes the quarrels and causes the fights among you? Now, he says, is it not this? And he names it. That your passions are at war within you, your desires you not have, so you murder. Now, that doesn't mean they're going out and stabbing one another. He says they're not getting their own way, and, <clears throat> and they're wanting what the other person has, so they hate each other. The Bible says so if he hate one another, we've murdered. Okay, that's how important it is. So that's what he's talking about here. You covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says it's your passions that are at war within you. There's a war going on in the heart. We've all experienced that battle. Many people are experiencing an inner battle, a conflict that's going on uh, between doing what they know is right and pleasing themselves. That's the problem here. They knew what was right to do, and yet they chose to please themselves. He says, what is it? It's your passions that are at work within you. The word for passions comes from a Greek word that we get our our word hedonism. It means to pursue pleasure. It's, I think we get the idea, you know, uh, if it feels good, do it. That, that's what this Greek word means, your passions. It's not a positive thing. You know, you can be passionate for your husband, your wife, or passionate about the gospel of Jesus. Now, these are talking about lustful passions. He says, your passions and your desires. The word desires is epithumia in Greek. It, can mean, it means passion, uh, desire, it can mean lusts. In and of itself, it's neutral, really. It's a neutral word. Epithumia, just a neutral word. But if it's, if it's talking about a desire for the word, that's one thing. If it's talking about a desire for something that is in excess, then it becomes a negative thing. So it's a neutral thing until it gets pushed to an extreme that begins sinful. And he says, and on top of all of this, you're so mad at each other that you're killing each other in uh, the spirit realm, you know. The reasoning among these that he's writing to was that they could be satisfied by fulfilling some kind of uh, pleasure. They're going to be at peace if they could just fulfill every craving or desire or lust that they had. I just want to say that King Solomon tried living this way. Though he was the wisest man that ever lived, I mean, listen, he wrote the book on wisdom, right? Though he was the wisest man who ever lived, as he grew older, he walked away from faithfulness to God, and he thought, he thought that if he fulfilled his desire for pleasure, he would be happy. And at the end of his life, he wrote another book, a journal of his experiences toward the end of his life. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes chapter two, listen to what he says. After his experience of chasing pleasure, of trying to go after this stuff, listen to what he says. I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Or I said to myself, let's go for it. Experiment with pleasure. Have a good time. 
He goes on to say, I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. All the sex I could want. The best sound system in the world. I guess that's what the, the men and women singers is all about. He says, anything I wanted, I would take. I deny myself no pleasure. How meaningless. He's the richest man in the world. He could have whatever he wanted. I said, I took whatever I wanted. And you know what it was? No pleasure. It was meaningless. The Hebrew actually says soap bubbles. So vanity. It's King James Version. Vanity. It means soap bubbles. It's, what is a soap? It goes up and then what does it do? Just pops. 700 wives, 300 concubines didn't bring Solomon happiness. And so he ends his life uh, by concluding in his journal these things. He says, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. He concludes, there was nothing to it, nothing but smoke. So I gave up in despair. It's all meaningless, like chasing the wind. Sad. It's really sad. Running after the lust and pleasure of life won't lead to satisfaction. As Solomon testified, it's a dead end. But as Solomon testifies, you can run after these pleasures but they don't fill the craving that you have on the inside. You can envy, you can want what somebody has, you can covet what they have, but even if you get it, that's not going to fulfill that desire because it's an inside problem. The battle, the war, the fight is in the heart. And the result will be, well, it's, it's that you won't seek God like you used to. Look, look, it says, uh, you ask, look at verse three. You ask and do not receive because you ask what? Wrongly. You amiss, some say. You, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You ask and do not receive. Apparently, the question was coming to James. Hey, we've been praying and God's not answering our prayers. And James shoots back. He says, you're not, your prayers aren't answered because, number one, you're out of fellowship with your brothers and sisters. You've got to be in fellowship with one another. You've got to continue to love one another if you want your prayers to be answered. See, we'll say, well, I'm being in fellowship with God, but not with her, not with him. You've got to understand that if you're going to be in fellowship with God, you're going to be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. As far as possible for you. I mean, it, it, not everybody is want to get back together with you. And that, that's not your problem. But you do all you can. The other problem that prayers weren't being answered is because they weren't asking in faith. We know from chapter 1, verse 6, that he says, if you're going to ask for, for <clears throat> wisdom, you need to ask with faith. Unwaveringly. They weren't asking in faith. Thirdly, we see that 
they were asking with wrong motives. He says, you ask and don't receive because you, you have, your prayers aren't hitting the target. You're so far off target. You're asking for your own will to be done, but prayer is all about God's will being done, right? It says you're asking with the wrong motives. And we know in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, it says that if we ask anything that is in agreement with Jesus' will, we'll receive it. But hey, if we're just praying with wrong motives for just something we want, and you know, it's not God's will, God's not going to answer that prayer. Now, the next two verses, James minces no words. These, this is heavy stuff, okay? This is not for the baby, Christian. You're not babies, okay? James minces no words. Verses four and five, whoa. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or as another translation says, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Philia to Cosmo. I like to say Greek once in a while so you know I study. Cosmo, cosmos, we talk about the cosmos, the world. Philia. We get the word Philadelphia from that, right? Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love. He says, if you've got brotherly love with the world, you hate God. That's strong. If you have brotherly love with the world, you hate God. He goes on to say, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? No, what what does that mean? The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. God is jealous over you. God shouldn't be jealous. Jealousy is a sin. No, it's not a sin. Depends, again. What are you jealous about? If your spouse takes off with you and with somebody else, you have a right to be jealous. It's a godly thing. God's a jealous lover. That's what's being talked about here. He says this kind of lifestyle that many of the leaders and believers of the church were living in, living morally conflicted lives, this kind of lifestyle, he says, is spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. It's, it's unfaithfulness to God. You can't live this kind of double life because as a believer, you're quote-unquote married to God. You're married to God. You have a covenant relationship with God. And you know how God looks at it when your hearts go out after the things of the world? He takes it very, very, very personally. It's a personal thing with God. He knows you're being unfaithful to him, and he views it 
as personally you are being unfaithful to him. If you're in bed with the world, you're not in love with Jesus. What is spiritual adultery? James defines it twice. Twice he says, friendship with the world. Let me tell you something. The world wants to be your friend. The world wants you as its friendship, friendship with the world. Wants you to be, welcomes you. Come on, be our friend. But this is what happened. The world, however you want to define it for your life, whatever you're in that you shouldn't be in, the world wants your friendship, but, but once you know it has you and you kind of used and cast off, the world isn't there to come when you're hurting, to put a cold cloth on your forehead and say, oh, let us help you out. The world isn't that way. The world just trashes you. So you don't even have a friend in the world anymore. So then as if to clarify, uh, James goes on to say the middle of verse four, middle of verse four, he says, therefore, okay, all of this other stuff before. Now, in light of that, therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 6, but you can change all that. You can change all that. There are painful consequences that follow believers who turn away from God's wisdom and God's ways. If you're not a friend of God, I see three things. I see that you will be without peace, that you will be without satisfaction in your life, and you will not have a friend. When I say this, you will not have peace in your life. You will always be seeking something. You won't be able to reach it. The Bible says there is no peace for the wicked. The Bible says the wicked are like the waves of the sea. They're just driven and tossed by the wind. It's the way the life is. If you're wicked, are you living among the wicked? No peace. Without the Lord, walking away from the Lord, living in disobedience to the Lord, it's going to be a life of uh, no satisfaction. You know, they wanted to have the things of the world so badly, they even fought and hated each other for it. Everyone, though, who hates his brother... Or his sister, the Bible says, is a murderer. And you know that no one who is a murderer has eternal life residing in him. They were seeking, seeking, seeking. As we learned with Solomon, you can seek and seek. But those things that are not godly seek after, they'll never never satisfy. You just need more the next time and more. You get it and then you need more to fulfill that desire. And you've reached that level and to, to get more satisfied or excited, you got to get more and more. And finally, you're just so hooked on something that you can't get free. That's where you have to say, have I had enough? Am I, is it bad enough that I'll change? And that's when you call out to God. You know, ultimately, you know, if you don't do this, you're not going to have a friend. 
The only friend is Jesus. He's the only friend that's going to stick with you. He says there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is always with you. You can always count on him. Even when you're going through this, and you're on the wrong side of friendship with God, you know what? Jesus is there, and he's ready for you to turn around, and he's not going to step back and say, okay, clean yourself up. He's going to say, all right, you've turned around. Now, let's do something about this. So how do you become a friend of God? We see that living this other way makes you an enemy of God. How to become a friend of God? I want to be, how many of you want to become a friend of God? Please all raise your hands. Right. We want to be a friend of God. Well, he tells us now how to be a friend of God. Look, it starts in verse seven. James gives 10 imperatives. 10 things we must do to be a friend of God. And this is not a complete list. This is just James thing right here. This in the Greek tense, these are imperatives, conveys a sense of urgency and do it now. This is really important and now, do it now. The first thing he says, well, let's just read it. He says, submit yourself to God. 10 things, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Ten things. Maybe you could say there are 11 if you take verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I just thought 10 was cooler than 11. Okay, I want to be a friend of God. How do I change? What do I do? First of all, he says, submit to God. Submission isn't forced obedience. It's voluntary service. That's what submitting to God is all about. It's not God is forcing you. God is saying, Will you serve me? The idea is like being a bond servant in the Old Testament. A bond servant was somebody who was a servant who was freed, but he says, I don't want to leave my master's house. My master is so good to me. And by the way, Jews were commanded to treat their slaves well. It wasn't like the United States slavery at all, okay? It wasn't like that at all. They lived in their master's house. They raised their kids there. But if a slave had freedom and he says, I love my master, I don't want to leave, he was a bond servant. He would become a bond servant. And that's, we love our father's house, I don't want to leave. I'm going to come back home. That was stupid to leave. We're like the prodigal son. Why did we run off? How could I not realize how good I had at my father's house? Submit to God. Secondly, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. I love that. He says, look, part of the problem here is that you are tempted and you're succumbing to temptation. You're pushover. He says, so what you need to do is you need to push back. 
resist the devil. In Greek, it means to push back. Okay, where are you seated? Just push back with me. Push back. Come on, push back. Say it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist, push back. See, sometimes we're so intimidated by him or his temptations. I cannot overcome this. There's no way. It's overwhelming. The Bible says, push back and the devil flees from you. We can say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. These are all scriptural things that you can say. Push back. Oh, and I gotta say this about temptation. Not every thought that tempts you is coming from you. If you leave with one thing, not every thought that comes in your mind is from you. Not every temptation that comes in your mind is from you. Satan can't read your mind. Say, Satan can't read my mind. You got to know that. Satan can't read my mind. He doesn't know your future, okay? But what he can do, he could drop a little thought in your mind. It's like whisper. That would be more like somebody whispering something and you overhear it. It didn't come from you. You heard it. And it's gross. So it's not from you. Push back, right? It's not... He's the Lord push back. Get away from me. And it says, He will flee from you. I, amen. 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 Resist the devil. The next thing I see is draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The term draw near comes from uh, the idea of the Old Testament priests coming toward the Lord to the sanctuary with offerings coming to God, drawing near to God. And the Bible, this is a promise. I claim, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. One promise, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. The second is draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Then he says, cleanse your hands. Psalm 24, verses three and four says, who can come to the hill of the Lord? Now, the hill of the Lord was where the holy temple was in Jerusalem. And uh, during feasts, uh, many feasts, all the men of Israel were called to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast around the temple. So the temple was on a hill. So the, the question is, who shall come to the hill of the Lord? Who can come to the hill of the Lord? And two things are, are, are said. He who has clean hands and has a pure heart, they can come to the hill of the Lord. So here it's significant that James says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Hands speak of what you do. I blow it. I do things I wished I hadn't. You too, right? How do we cleanse our hands? How do we cleanse ourselves from those things? The blood of Jesus Christ, right? It's salvation in Christ. That cleanses. He says, come through cleansing. Let Jesus cleanse you and purify your hearts. That's the next thing he says. Purify your hearts. Purify your hearts. The heart represents the inner person. And in this case, probably has to do with the motives. What's your motives? Purify your hearts. You may be offered something, but why would you accept? Purify your hearts. You may do something. What are your motives? God checks the motives. 
verse, uh, the next one, which would be the sixth one I, I point out is, he says, look at verse nine. Uh, a better translation might be, be miserable. Be miserable. Wow, I came to church, and what did I learn today? To be miserable in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> be miserable? Why? Why does God want me to be miserable? Look, he's saying, you want to be a friend of God? If you want to be a friend of God, you got to be miserable. It has the idea of being broken over your sin. God, I am so sorry for what I have done. You know how you feel after you sin? Like crud? After you sin, right? Regret? Shame? I can't believe I did that again? What's the matter with me? Why? Wouldn't it be cool if we had that little bit of that before we sin? Hello? That would be fantastic. Be miserable. Break, think about your sin. Be brokenhearted over it. It's okay to be brokenhearted over your sin. It's good. He says next, mourn. Mourn. This, this word mourn would be the term used for the way you would be sorry over your mom or your dad dying or your brother or your sister or your husband or your wife. If they died, how you would mourn. When my mom died, I mourned. I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. I mourned. And he's saying mourn. Why? Mourn over your sins. It hurt Jesus. It's hurt you. It could hurt your family. The Holy Spirit convicts you. Mourn. I'm sorry. And he says weep. Friends of Jesus, weep over their sins. That speaks of tears of sorrow and shame and repentance. God doesn't want to shame us. And I think many times we come to tears when we realize we've shamed Jesus. I've listened to a lot of people's confessions. Not a priest. I'm not Jesus, but I've listened to a lot of people confess. I've confronted a lot of people who needed to confess, and they needed to face the consequences of what they'd done. And you know what always impresses me is how people who are truly repentant cry. Even the toughest guy truly repents, and I've seen they're sorry. They cry. God sees that too. And I've, I've looked at people that I know are lying, and they say they're sorry, and there's not a tear. There's nothing happening no emotion, and I don't say, well, some people just don't have emotions. I say, no, the Bible says, weep, mourn over your sin. And if that isn't happening, something's wrong. Peter wept when he betrayed Christ, didn't he? 
Repentance. Godly repentance has tears. Doesn't mean that you're going to cry every time you sin either. It's not what we're talking about. We're just saying you mourn your sins. You weep over your sins. You hate your sins. How do I know I'm a Christian? I hate my sins. If you don't hate your sin, what's the matter with you? Then he says, um, this is interesting. He says, uh, let your laughter be turned into mourning. What? I can't be happy? No, he's saying, get serious. And then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself in the presence of God and he will exalt you. You know, in the presence of God, come on, who can stand before God and say, hey, I'm pretty good, right? For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God and not of works that anyone should boast. Nobody's gonna be in heaven saying, yeah, God shows me, aren't I great? No, God was looking for who he needed to save and he saw you. And you were like, oh my land, I better save you. And that's with all of those who were lost. God's just saying, it's by my grace that you're saved. Not, you're not a hot dog in heaven. You know what I'm saying? You're just saved by God's grace. Humble yourselves. And you know, in light of, of what he's, he's seeing friends of God do, I mean, this is all pretty humbling, isn't it? If you're serious about being a friend of God, God walks with humble people, with meek-hearted people, That's who God walks with. Jesus came to this earth, and how was he? Meek and humble in heart. Meek and humble in heart, the Bible says. How do I be humble? Well, I'm humble now. (laughs) Who's going to say that, right? You've just reached pride. Look, this is how. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. God pushes back the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You need help. God will give you the grace to be humble. Humility says, hey, I need to submit. I need to flee. I I need to resist. I need to draw near to God. I need to clean my hands and my, my heart. I need, you know, all of these things. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. And it says, uh, it's quoted, this is quoted again in, in, by the Apostle Peter. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the right time. Humble yourself. God will take care of exalting you. That's his job. That's his work. Let him do that. I want to be a friend of God. We want to be friends of God. It's pretty clear how if we've been friends with the world, we can cut those ties And we can become friends of God. Let's pray. Lord, we know that there is something for every one of us that we've heard. And I just ask that we will be able to take that, not forget it. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, put it into practice. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Awesome. God's word is fantastic.
tremble at his voice all creation rises to rejoice behold a God seated on his throne come let us adore him behold a king nothing can compare come let us
His throne Come let us adore Him Behold our King Nothing can compare Come let us adore Him Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Divine Intervention. At the sound of something breaking, the noisy room suddenly became quiet. Everyone's attention in the room was immediately focused on one place. A woman was pouring oil on Jesus' head while he was sitting. The perfume flowing from the broken alabaster jar was soaking Jesus' head. The room was soon filled with the heavy scent of nard. The woman, whose eyes were full of deep love and awe, was now kneeling down and bowing. Then she poured all the remaining nard on Jesus' feet and began to wash his feet with her hair. The people were astonished to see the sight before them. Suddenly, they began to talk noisily. Tisk, tisk, what is she doing? That's expensive oil. Isn't that nard perfume that doesn't rot? How could she just pour it out like that? You're right. That kind of pure perfume will cost us a year's wage. Tisk, tisk, what a waste. She should just use a little. She must be out of her mind to pour it out like that. That's right. How could she do such a reckless thing? Wouldn't it be better if she sold that perfume for 300 denarii and given it to the poor? How could she do such a foolish act? What a complete waste! Jesus heard Judas Iscariot's cynical words and became filled with anger as he began to speak. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. We all know the Bible story of the woman who broke the alabaster jar, poured expensive perfume, and washed Jesus' feet. Among the women who appear in the Bible, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and Martha is the one I envy the most. Jesus said this to the people who were sharply criticizing Mary's action. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Isn't it amazing? There was a definite reason why Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, Mary breaking the alabaster jar and pouring perfume on him will also be told in memory of her. We can assume that Mary's action deeply moved Jesus and it was meaningful and important. 
Mary's family lived in the town of Bethany, which was a poor town. When Jesus came to Bethany, he often stayed at Mary's house. That day, Mary's family specially prepared a feast for Jesus. Recently, this family had a special experience. Mary's brother Lazarus, who died of an illness, came back to life after three days. Jesus brought him back to life. After hearing such unbelievable news, many Jews gathered to see Jesus and Lazarus. The people paid attention to Jesus and Lazarus with curiosity and anticipation. When Mary was preparing a feast for Jesus, her heart was glad, but it was also heavy. She had a heavy and ominous foreboding that this might be the last time she could serve Jesus. Mary thought of what Jesus said about the suffering he must face. Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem on Passover, but there was something different about the look in his eyes. It seemed like he was preparing for something. Also, the surrounding situation didn't seem good. After the incident with Lazarus' resurrection, the Pharisees kept a close eye on Jesus, and this made Mary feel anxious about the future. She couldn't get rid of the thought that something tremendous was awaiting. She was concerned about what she could do for Jesus in this situation. She thought of the nard in the alabaster jar, which was her entire wealth. It seemed like the best gift she could give to Jesus today. Mary was a woman who always listened to Jesus when he was near. She sat at Jesus' feet and opened her heart, soul, mind, and spirit to accept his word. Mary was connected to Jesus with such trust, faith, and love that she knew Jesus' heart just by looking into Jesus' eyes. She was filled with grace through Jesus' word. Mary's spirituality was clear and deep as she listened to Jesus' word, as she looked at Jesus' life, and as she experienced the holy power coming out through Jesus. Mary was the only one who had a foreboding of Jesus' suffering and death. She felt Jesus' heart of anguish as he was about to enter Jerusalem on Passover and understood Jesus' strong intent to obey God's will. Rather, the disciples who were always with Jesus didn't understand what Jesus had to endure. They didn't try to believe Jesus' word about his suffering and death. More than that, they were interested in the position they would have in the future. They argued about who was greater. The disciples were excited about the expectation that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the world will be turned over and a new world would unfold. Jesus probably felt lonely before these disciples. There wasn't anyone who gave strength to Jesus or understood what Jesus had to endure. However, one woman named Mary came and poured perfume on Jesus. Jesus read Mary's heart through her eyes. He knew what Mary was thinking and why she generously poured all the expensive perfume on him even while she listened to the people's criticism. Jesus was moved. Mary was already preparing for Jesus' suffering and death, and it seemed to make the path Jesus had to take more certain. The moment Mary poured perfume on Jesus' head, 
I began to think that Mary was the only one on earth who understood Jesus and connected with Jesus' heart. I am very envious of Mary. Mary was a woman who showed in advance what kind of death Jesus would face. Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. A few days later, Jesus died on the cross. Like the broken alabaster jar, Jesus' body was torn and broken. Just as the perfume was flowing, Jesus' blood flowed, and Jesus' life was sacrificed. Jesus laid down his life and died instead of those he became enemies and those who deserved to die. Barabbas, who received a death sentence and was the leader of sinners, was freed and God's son Jesus became a sinner and was nailed on the cross. Something appalling happened. What an indescribable and incredible waste. Jesus' body was torn and broken instead of the enemy thief, and sinner. Christ's blood and life was poured freely for the worthless. That was a tremendous waste. That's right. Jesus' death was God's tremendous waste. Judas Iscariot said it was a waste for Mary to break the alabaster jar and pour perfume on Jesus. He criticized Mary's action and said it would have been more useful to help the poor people. However, Mary's act of breaking the alabaster jar was right before Jesus. It was a prophetic action that showed in advance what kind of death Jesus would face. It was an act of devotion where she poured her heart before the Lord's grace. Judas Iscariot did not properly know Jesus. Judas Iscariot couldn't distinguish between devotion and waste. Instead, he poured his entire life into vain things and wasted his life. True love is not wasteful. When you're in love, time and everything you have is not a waste. At times, more than working hard, the time of praying might seem like a waste, but it is not a waste. Helping others and making donations without mentioning your name or getting something in return are not waste but love. Buying your aged parents new clothes even though they don't go on outings is not a waste but love. Something you do for Jesus is not a waste. Dear beloved listeners, I want us to reflect upon our lives. I reflect upon my life to see if I'm preserving my things rather than putting them to use like a tightly shut alabaster jar. Do I consider my life as prudent by being anxious about losing my things and piling them up? I want us to reflect upon our lives. Are we like Judas Iscariot? Do we make what seems to be a practical decision first? Do we make calculations in our minds? I discovered the pragmatic calculations of Judas Iscariot within me. I discovered Judas Iscariot within me who calculates things so I won't waste and make a loss. Just as Jesus was broken for us, we should be broken for our neighbors so the perfume within us will overflow and the lovely and holy scent will spread to the world. 
The Lord remembers our alabaster jar. A waste for Jesus. A holy waste. Those are not a waste. What kind of life are you living? Today's divine intervention was about Mary and the title was What a Waste. Dear listeners, I hope we could break our alabaster jars and live a life of holy waste. See you next week. Be blessed in the Lord. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.